Welcome to Let's Hear It. Let's Hear It is a podcast for and about the field of foundation and nonprofit communications, produced by its two co-hosts, Eric Brown and Kirk Brown. No relation. Well said, Eric. And I'm Kirk. And I'm Eric. The podcast is sponsored by the Communications Network and the Lumina Foundation. We're talking to people about their work and what's happening in the field with the hopes of making this growing arena just a little bit more accessible to us all. You can find Let's Hear It on any podcast subscription platform. You can find us on Twitter at Let's Hear It Cast, and you can email us at hello at Let's Hear Cast.com. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you hear today, including people we should have on the show. And if you like the show, please, please, please rate us on Apple Podcasts so that more people can find us. So let's get on to the show. Welcome to Let's Hear It. It's fabulous to have you back. And I'm really pleased to announce that Kirk Brown has <laughs> successfully completed another interview. That's true. Uh, I'm I'm proud of you, my friend. Me too. It's uh, it really no. You get you you're showing some chops. It's it's really great, Kirk. Now I have to tell you that y- you are high on my list of people who depressed me. Yeah, I try to. In, in, in that view. The, tell. And, and, and let's just discuss that a little bit. Who are we going to listen to today? <laughs> okay, we're headed to Cambridge. We're talking, it's the Bennett Institute for Public Policy. Which Cambridge? Cambridge, I don't know, Cambridge. Uh, England? Yes, the, Cambridge University of England. In, in the real grand Cambridge. Grand old England. And, um, no, no, not the Bozers in, in, uh, in no, Massachusetts. No, 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 no. We're, we're, we're getting very high fluting with this. And uh, Got it. In October 2020, uh, their Center for the Future of Democracy issued a report entitled Youth and Satisfaction with Democracy. And um, the the findings are worth previewing before we get into the interview because basically the findings aren't so good. That um, we're, we're confronting globally a historic, historically low levels of satisfaction with democracy amongst youth, which basically counts as anybody millennial and younger. So... We have on the podcast uh, two of the key contributors to that report, um, Dr. Roberto Foa and his uh, research associate colleague, Daniela Wenger, um, were gracious enough to respond to my just out of the blue query because I'd seen coverage of the work that they had done and they were willing to spend time with me on the podcast talking about it. So this is youth in satisfaction with democracy and it's it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a ride i will say it's a little bit of a ride because it's it's really a bummer what they what they and satisfaction we'll we'll put in extremely large air quotes (laughs) that's right that's right that's okay well so we will listen to this conversation and we will be back to talk about it after the conversation Welcome today for another edition of Let's Hear It, and I am so pleased and grateful today to be joined by Dr. Roberto Stefan Foa and Danielle Wenger, um, both from the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at Cambridge. Um, Roberto and Danielle, thank you so much for joining us on Let's Hear It today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Yes, thank you so much for having us. So our topic today is youth in satisfaction with democracy. And uh, Roberto and Daniela, that sounds like a really sunny title. So it sounds like we've got good news to talk about today. Is that correct? Uh, there are elements of good news in the report, and that should certainly not be overlooked. However, I suppose the headline findings are a little bit more pessimistic. Um, 
And uh, the, the, the key finding, I suppose, is that uh, young people across the world, uh, including in the United States, and perhaps especially in the United States, are more dissatisfied with democracy in the past and much more dissatisfied. And I think one of the things I saw from your assessment, how that dissatisfaction gets expressed, and it seems like one measure, at least, is the extent to which young people choose to participate in politics. Is that fair as well? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think that for a long period of time, people have argued that, well, you know, maybe it's not so bad that young people are dissatisfied with democracy, because maybe that means that young people are just more critical, uh, you know, have higher standards for what people expect of politicians. And, um, you know, that can express itself in, in pro-civic ways, right? That could express itself through protest. It could also express itself through political mobilization or voting. And I think um, part of our argument is to say, well, hold on a second, because uh, that is a possible expression of that discontent. But it's also possible that after a period of time with disillusionment with how institutions are functioning, people can also become withdrawn, uh, can become apathetic, can become distanced from politics, and potentially mobilizable by very toxic anti-system politicians and parties. Obviously, our, our audience is, is uh, global, and you know our data show that people listen to this podcast around the world, but we have a, a big you know, following in the United States as well. How would you say the view looks for the United States relative to what the data show from other parts of the world? Do you have a feeling for that? I mean, is the general take about the same, more or less, better or worse, and any perspective specific to the United States from what you saw in the analysis? I think that the trends that are seen in the United States are also echoed across the world, given also to hear young people are less satisfied with democracy in absolute and relative terms. I think that the findings, which maybe we'll get into a little bit later, about populism and um, how young people are feeling about populist leaders or even the backlash against populist rhetoric is also seen throughout the world. So I think it's really interesting to see how these trends are global. And the U.S. is just one example of, is yet another example, I should say, of young people's dissatisfaction with democracy. And so you talk about populism, and I'm just curious, can you first define for me that term? And then also, um, what did you see related to populism and, and, and where this dissatisfaction with democracy can go? Because I think that that to me struck me as kind of like one of the aha and uh-oh parts of what you were finding here. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, populism is one of those terms where, you know, if you ask four academics for a definition, you know, you'll get different responses. OK, I'll try and keep it to one and just be my take. I think populism is defined as anti-system politics. Is someone who comes in who's an outsider who says, look, you know, uh, I'm the voice of the people. The system is corrupt. I'm going to drain the swamp. Uh, vote for me. Uh, the key to the populist as a politician is you mobilize people by channeling their anger, their rage, their frustration at some target group. And, you know, what that target group is kind of defines what kind of populist you are, right? If you're a left-wing populist or a right-wing populist, uh, are you targeting you know, immigrants? Are you targeting uh, the political elite? And I guess all populists target the political elite. Are you targeting economic elites and the rich or the wealthy, uh, which moves you in a more left-wing direction? Populists kind of have this very simple frame, right? 
very simple frame in terms of the people versus the elite and the populist demagogue as you know the the voice of the people well and this is what was so striking to me in seeing your analysis come forward and and it, 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 in a sense, I, I feel like you're, you're, what your assessment is pointing out was that that notion that the younger generation coming behind more deeply gets at their core, it seems, some of these intrinsic values that we've been fighting for for so long. Do you have a perspective on that or can you help me parse that? Well, first of all, let me say that you know, I think it's important to be hopeful. You know, hope is not a strategy. Uh, so, so hope for the best, prepare for the worst is probably a good uh, motto in life. I think that, you know, starting with Generation X, but much more so with millennials, I think that the, the life experience for democracy has been very different. I mean, if you think about the United States, you know, you've had multiple elections where the winning candidate has not actually got a majority of the vote. You have the war in Iraq, and, and I guess in some sense, I don't know if I would say humiliation, but certainly exhaustion of military engagements overseas. And so that, that has kind of worn on people's pride in the system, uh, in the country, uh, but also, I guess, in how the, the system is operating. But at the same time, you've got a generation that has come of age that has very serious uh, challenges, right, in, in one's own life with respect to you know, burdens of student debt in terms of finding housing, especially after the financial crisis. And you look at the political system, and what you see is, you know, a great deal of lobbying. You see... Uh, gridlock frequently between branches of government uh, and perhaps a sense that the political system is not delivering for you personally and you wonder well who is it delivering for roberto you gave me a really important thing to reflect on that may be something that i need to uh put into some of my strategic plan thinking moving forward that hope isn't the strategy do you have any take about our current political landscape in the united states and how it kind of reflects what you found here in the study or just even how you know what we're seeing playing out in in, in the past few weeks and what's ahead here in the next couple of months how that might uh, influence or inform these these trend lines as they move forward any any thoughts about that my first thought is what we're coming from so Donald Trump is seen as not just in my perspective, but also from many academics, journalists, and policymakers around the world as a populist. And in fact, in based on our research, he was the only right-wing populist where young people's satisfaction with democracy declined precipitously, um, as opposed to the other countries where there were right-wing populists where actually young people did gravitate towards their message, but that's more of a tangent that we could talk about a little bit later. In terms of forward-looking things in the United States, I think that Biden is definitely seen among progressives, at least, as a very moderate politician. And I think we did do some data work about how moderates compare to populists in terms of satisfaction with democracy. And our key finding there was that when comparing elections of populist leaders to elections of moderates, we find that when the moderates win, as opposed to the populist incumbent, young people's satisfaction with democracy does not increase and actually, on average, declines over time. Speaking as a millennial American, I want my fellow peers to get re be reengaged in the political fold I saw the impact that Bernie had on young people and his ability to bring them back into the political fold. And I'm really hopeful, um, although we reminded before that hope isn't a strategy, that Biden can bring my peers with him as he 
continues to lead our country for the next four years. This work is titled Youth and Satisfaction with Democracy. You know, I think a democracy is kind of the governance system, but then, you know, at, underneath that, there are the issues related to income and wealth inequality and the fabric of social and environmental issues that also are, are related to and oftentimes come from that. I, I just wonder, are we seeing dissatisfaction with democracy? Are we seeing dissatisfaction with global economic systems that are, are leaving some people behind while other people race ahead? Does parsing it that way help us in any way or not? Or is it just confusing the issue because democracy is our preferred tool for addressing those economic questions? Do you, any, any thoughts about that? One thing that I've got to be really clear about is that uh, the question that we use in our research uh, is asking people about their level of satisfaction with the functioning of democracy. So it's not, not a measure of people's democratic ideals, people's desire for democracy in some abstract sense. It's you know looking at the system you have now, uh, how satisfied are you with how it's working? And, and that's why I think you can't really separate out the economic from the political. If you think about the causes of millennial discontent, you can look at your student debt or the inability to get housing, find decent employment or jobs. And you might say, well, okay, you know, that, that's discontent with life, but it's not really discontent with democracy. But at the end of the day, if the roots of that inequality link in the political system, right, in terms of the inability to deliver you know, good health care when the public has strong demand for it, or the power of lobbyists and the ways in which there's often a real misalignment between what the public wants to get out of Washington, D.C., and you know what actually goes on there, um, then I don't think you can separate those two things. Well, I think that note you touched on, though, so this, this odd thing where the moderate voice doesn't necessarily correlate to greater satisfaction with the functioning of democracy, but that populist voice can. So can you can you explore that a little bit? If we don't address some of this undercurrent of dissatisfaction, what's ahead actually if we don't if we don't really see progress in some of the things that you've pointed out are the causes for the dissatisfaction? I think a short answer to what lies ahead is just like more one-term presidencies in the United States, which are like hindered or hampered by an opposing party in the Senate and the House, which perhaps can on the one hand, can look to many Americans as straight political inefficiency and president that can't get anything done. And then on the other hand, other people may look at it as a president like Biden has a history of reaching across the aisle and working with people with vehemently different ideas about what America should look like. So I think essentially boiling it down, it could either lead to a lot of additional dissatisfaction on the moderate side of things or additional, perhaps, um, optimism about the future. Well, and so hopefully maybe landing us on a hopeful note, I think, um, Roberta, one thing you mentioned is that this dissatisfaction with functioning a democracy, you don't see as much with systems that are viewed to be less corrupt or, or, or less having these kind of um, inequalities within the system. Are there some examples that you can point to there? And are, are there some, you know, strategies that, that emerge from those kinds of systems that shine forth in terms of what's being done to help ensure that people feel better about the functioning of the democracies that they're participating in? Yeah, sure. There's only two questions there, right? So the first question is, can we point to countries that where, you know, institutions function, people are satisfied with democracy, young people are satisfied with democracy. You know, there are countries like Switzerland or Norway, Finland, the usual suspects. So that's that's kind of the easy question. But 
it, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, Francis Fukuyama, I think, wrote this essay called Getting to Denmark, right? And the idea was like, you know, we all know what a good democracy looks like. And we can see how Denmark functions. We go, okay, you know, there's civic participation, there's equality, people turn out to vote. You have a functioning welfare state, it's a prosperous economy. But, but we actually don't know how to get there. Second question, which is a bit trickier, is like, okay, given where we are, given our starting point, and I think this comes back to the conversation about Biden presidency and, and what kind of future lies ahead for the United, United States, is like, given your starting point, you've had this populist shock, how do you get, quote unquote, back to normal? And, and of course, you know, Biden's whole campaign is about, you know, getting back to normal. You know, when you read the media discussion in the United States, I mean, after the election, there's a lot of doubts about whether we really can get back to normal. So um, how do you get out of populism? And what country, are there any ca- countries that have done that? And there's very few cases. Either what you see, I mean, the countries where, where this has happened, like you could say Greece in the 1990s, sometimes you've had a populist party that has been in time, and then it moderates once it's in office. And you see that a lot. I mean, you know, Lula in Brazil ran as a populist, uh, but once he was in office, he really moderated his platform. And so sometimes that happens. That, and that's one way of kind of getting out of the populist trap. And the other way is that <laughs> populism brings society to such a phenomenal crisis. The political system collapses, right, like it did in Peru under Fujimori. Uh, and at that point, there's a kind of just a process of refoundation that takes place. Um, and I don't think the United States has got there yet. Well, this is such important work. And of course, people can find you um, at the Bennett Institute. But I'm curious, uh, Roberto and Danielle, before we before we leave you today, and thank you so much for taking time to talk with me about your research. Um, are there any last pieces related to this research, any last items that you want to make sure that our listeners are thinking about as we as we move forward? Because certainly it seems like there's a lot here to be grappled with, and, and it's critically important to um, find some some answers to what's what we're seeing here in the data. Um, one thing, especially that given that we're both Californians and you're based in San Francisco, um, and I spent a lot of time in the Bay Area as a proud Cal alumna. I think it's important to tell my fellow Bay Area residents out there that populism doesn't only exist on the left. There's also and that populism is growing and young people are increasingly attracted to populism on the right as well. And our study found that young people's satisfaction with democracy increases not only with the election of left-wing populist leaders, but also with the election of right-wing populist leaders, especially in non-English-speaking democracies. And I think that that's especially alarming today because, like, I think that us within California or within the Bay Area often think of populism. We think of Bernie. We think as an ideology that is 100% absorbed by young people, and it's progressive and liberal. But I think it's also important for us to understand that populism on the right is also something that's very attractive to young people around the world. I mean, the fact that's a global phenomenon, right? It's it's not just the purview of one, one type of person or another, right? Of course. I think that the Bay Area is definitely a bubble. And looking beyond it, when we think about concepts of what democracy should look like, what our government could look like um, is really important. Well, this is such deep work that's needed and clearly more to come. Um, Roberta, Daniela, thank you so much for your work, this analysis, everything you're doing at the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at Cambridge um, and at the Center for the Future of Democracy. Just 
Thank you, thank you. Terrific work. We'll keep our eyes out. We'll, we'll stay peeled for what's coming next from you, and um, hopefully we can have you on a future edition of Let's Hear It, and maybe we'll even be pointing at some indicators that we're making progress with some of this. That would be wonderful. Okay, maybe we'll be able to provide you with some of those indicators. Thank you, Kirk. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay, so we're back. You just had a conversation about youth satisfaction with with democracy. Yes. Yes. Uh, so let's just start from the beginning, Kirk. For, yeah. Y- you are uh, well known to the listeners of this podcast as uh, being <laughs> a, a, a denizen in the depths of the dark underbelly of the world. So you're, yes, you're hooked on misinformation and disinformation. And now youth satisfaction, which we just have to read as youth dissatisfaction Dissatisfaction. with democracy. Yeah. I I don't want to talk about your childhood or how, (laughs) you know, whether you you were, your parents didn't treat you well, but why, (laughs) why was this interesting to you? What, what was it you were hoping to get out of this conversation? Well, true or not, our podcast is about foundation and nonprofit communications with an emphasis on social change and making the world a better place. Thank you for reminding me. There it is. So can we do, thanks for listening. Can we, can we do that? <laughs> Can we make the world a better place if democracy isn't working? Oh, got it. What do you think? Thank you. Can we do it if democracy itself isn't working? <laughs> okay, A, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, B, but B, given the parlous state of youth engagement with democracy, not only that, now did I understand this correctly, that... In countries that have elected populist leaders, have seen mm. a recovery in youth satisfaction yeah. in democracy. With democracy, what is what are we supposed to learn from that? So, if you have populism, that yeah. you are you are more likely to engage youth and to help them have a more satisfying relationship with democracy. What now? This. Let me just go back and say, what do you what did you perceive to be the definition of populism, and is it possible to have a progressive or positive form of populism that will engage youth in a way that makes things better? Or are we just kind of destined to this really difficult future? Destined is the key part. This is what I think you and I need to talk about. So a couple things. So first of all, by the way, as always, we have to say thank you to Dr. Foa and Daniela for coming on the podcast. They were so gracious to talk with me about this. I thought Roberto had a great definition for populism. He said, populist is the anti-system candidate. So anybody who's opposing the system. And and what I loved about, as he got into that, he said, the populist rhetoric is half right. Because the, po- and, and it's populism from the left and right, by the way, right? So it's not just, it's not just right. one perspective. It's Bernie but I loved and it Donnie. When, that's right. And I loved it when he said, half of the critique is right, which is their call, those populist voices call out these endemic challenges to the system and they name it as wrong. And that part is right. It's the second part that gets difficult, which is oftentimes the prescription, but also the populist device of naming a culprit 
in the process. And it's funny because we've actually had some, you know, we, we, we had some pollsters that helped us identify the oligarchs as the right. culprit, right? And then, of course, we have the horrific language we've seen in the U.S. from the right around, you know, who the culprits are for this systemic thing. So, so this is the thing I would, I would just throw back to you, Eric, is like that notion, that critique of a system failing. Um, to me, that's the most, or, or the failures of a system. To me, that's the really interesting and meaty part of this for the work that we do and the work that we see our colleagues doing. Sure. And yet, so that's, it's true. And, and we hear about systems change all the time. Mm -hmm. And the other question, however, is changing a system seems like this amorphous, whether you want to call it an enemy or a problem or whatever, systems kind of are these blobby things that don't have a face or a name or anything. Yeah. And right. changing that is really difficult. Identifying and at the same time, and we're hearing from folks like uh, Anat Shankar Osorio, who someday I hope to have on the show, mm. who, who talks about, yes, it is, ter it is perfectly fine. She's, she's promoting, sort of helping people on the uh, progressive people, people in the progressive community communicate and build a narrative around what a positive future would look like. And part of that mm. is identifying that there is a problem, naming the perpetrators of the problem, acknowledging that race is central to many of the challenges that we as a democracy are facing. So mm -hmm. so it's okay to find the person or thing that you're against, naming it, and then mm -hmm. it, engaging with that. But when the thing that you're against is a system, mm -hmm. it makes it kind of hard to figure out where to dig your teeth into. So uh, addressing these system systemic problems has always felt to me like uh, you know, nailing jello against the wall. No, I totally get it. And it's funny because it, it makes me think about like, <laughs> how do you walk into a foundation and say, I want to fund a love campaign, right? Well, we didn't know how to do that until <laughs> Trabian Shorters told right, us how to do right. it, until Trabian gave us that. But right, this, this, this other piece, how do you walk in and say, oh, you know, the whole system's messed up. How do we address that? So before we go there, one of the things they talked about that I loved was this notion that inequality is at the root. And, you know, we've, we've talked about that on this podcast and, and it's the connection it's income inequality leading to wealth inequality that creates this horrible erosion. And, you know, when you go back, um, one of the other reasons I thought it would be great to have this on the podcast is that there was a global media campaign about this report when it came out in October, 2020, you can do a quick Google search, you know, youth and satisfaction with democracy, and you're going to find coverage from outlets all around the world. And one of the common touchstones for the source of this dissatisfaction, we're still suffering the consequences of the 2008 economic collapse that, you know, and so we think about this, it's like a 12 years later, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing the consequences of this global economic malaise that came, came out and, and how it's, it's gnawing at in, in, in all parts of the world, you know, not just in the United States, but in, in all parts of the world. And then surprisingly, there's some, there's some places that, that actually buck that trend, but this gnawing piece around income and wealth inequality. So I thought that was actually an interesting in terms of like putting a finger on the pulse of, okay, here's a problem. I feel like we've heard some really interesting stuff on this podcast about those topics too. What do you think about that? Well, now that you say that it, it, it worries me even more because now we've, We've parlayed that lag, that 12-year lag of what happened in 2008 with mm -hmm. the global pandemic 
and yeah. the complete shakeup of our economy now. So we have seen, I, I don't know, so you see a, a piece in the paper almost every week about how the millennials are the generation that got screwed the most yes. because they've been through the most and are dealing yeah. with all these challenges. And A, it's an existential thing that we'll always live with folks who live through this moment. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. B, there's just this clear effect on people's income, their ability to earn an income. You start at a certain level and that sets your base for the rest of your life. You understand things about what the workforce looks like. The workforce is changing. So these are all phenomenal challenges. And the only question yeah. that I have is how do we – I don't know. I don't want to say use it to our advantage, but how do you take, I don't know, how do you learn from this in such a way that you can produce a, a narrative about what the world could be, use it right. as an opportunity to build upon some kind of shared experience? Clearly, the systems that we put in place that got us to where we are weren't adequate, and it is an opportunity to build for a much better future. So if, if you are doing that kind of activism, if you are working in communications or trying to build a new narrative about what the future could could look like, engaging with young people today who are clearly uh, at odds on politics, they're ambivalent about democracy, uh, is it an opportunity? Is it an inflection point? I hope so, but I don't know. What do you think? Well, yeah, not only do we, I think, oh, that was also one of the things I loved about um, Roberto, one of his comments, you know, hope is not a strategy, was a famous <laughs> comment he made, you know, I always, uh, I want to be so full. Damn say, him. Uh, hope is one an aspiration. Of my best strategies. I don't know. That's right. So I, this is why I think this is worth talking about, because I think this is such a, we, I don't think it's a choice. I think we have to do it. And um, one of the reasons I was so struck by it too is in my own kind of um, lackadaisical thinking, I, I've just been waiting for the millennials to take over. You know, it's like, finally, the millennials, you know, they, 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 they're the great hope, the great aspiration. Here come the millennials. <laughs> it's all going to be better. Oh, I love, the, Here's I the, love millennials. the millennials. They're coming. And, thanks, but yet, thanks God, the millennials. But this is one of those cases where you just like actually let's let the data guide us and and there's and so here's a here's an interesting data point, and this wasn't something we talked about in the podcast, but it's in some of the writing. So this this notion of inequality in wealth and income um, today, millennials make up about a quarter of the U.S. population. They hold just three percent of the wealth. By contrast, baby boomers at the same point held twenty one percent of the nation's wealth. So that's the kind of um, that's the kind of deterioration we've seen in economic opportunity, and I do think that economic opportunity that 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 missing economic opportunity is really really scary. I think it is. What do you think? Well, the other question is, if this were a movie, the baby boomers would start to cough, and you go, <laughs> "Oh, something's going to happen to the baby boomers." So, what happens when that wealth gets transferred? And mm -hmm. what were mm -hmm. what will the policies that we have to take advantage of that transfer, to use that transfer in productive ways, to ensure that all that wealth now gets reinvested in an effective way into our into our a better world, because those baby boomers, you know, ain't gonna last forever. 
Now, so do, will it, yeah, but will it all will it flow to the millennials? I doubt it. But it, this is a real question about what our tax policy will be like, what our all that policy stuff will be. Like. Well, but maybe you just gave the outlines of the campaign that's ahead because oh, the, so this was I'm, this was my I mean this was my thought. <laughs> this was my thought. I was like, so so we have many global campaigns that start with C that I'm a big fan of. You know, we've had. Criminal justice reform. <laughs> One of your global Big campaigns is start a podcast, but go on. Climate. Great global campaign, right? So here's my question. Why can't we have a global campaign focused on corruption? Because that's that's one of the things that that they identify. It's it's the corruption, it's the graft in the system. That's what's causing this erosion of confidence because people don't they know it's happening and they don't like it so why can't we have a global campaign around corruption in all of its many forms and try to systematically root it out and 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 why can't that be as powerful and as salient for us as any of these other campaigns where we all know and love and we and we we point to because to the question I started our podcast with do we get to do any of this work if there's if democracy isn't working do you get to do it if democracy? So that that's that's my prescription is what is a global campaign to root out corruption so that actually governance works for everybody, irrespective of the amount of money that you can show up with to make it work for you. Why couldn't you do something like that and whatever that would look like? Okay, I'm in. Well, it's true. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's definitely true. Poor governance will drive a challenged economy, a country that doesn't doesn't function, and a larger economic system that doesn't work. But I want you are reminding me of my old <laughs> boss, Larry Kramer, who is the <laughs> mad genius over at the Hewlett Foundation, who is looking at these these I would call them almost fulcrum issues. So he's mm -hmm. looking at democracy and neoliberalism, yeah. cyber terrorism, which is one of the great threats to everything we know uh, yep. and, and climate and all of these things kind of go together. So you're right. If we don't have a functioning democratic system we can enact policies and practices that that will allow us to do anything at all and we can't right. pass climate policy and if you can't pass climate policy then all life on earth <laughs> ceases to <laughs> continue the way we know it so these pieces kind of right. build on each other and larry a special friend of mine that he is sees all these how they all go together and i i'm fascinated by by that level of thinking. And I just think that you are right. We have to think about anything that you care about out there right now. You have to back your way all the way back to the mm -hmm. things that allowed those things to happen, the challenges to occur, and how do you kind of remediate or reset the system on, upon which all those decisions that allow your perfect world, whatever it is that you care about, whether it's health, whether it's education, environment, whatever, what, what is all that sitting on? And I think you're right. It's faith in a democratic system, mm -hmm. a conviction that governments and people in those kinds of decisions uh, uh, work and are based on a system that we all have some trust in and on the whatever the natural systems that we all rely on to live. Well, it so, is yeah, one of those... democracy, and if the youth, if the youths today... <laughs> don't have faith in democracy we're in a world of hurt yeah it's it's bad times ahead and and this is one of the great things where you just get to be an idiot with the microphone because i don't 
envy anybody who has to figure it out, right? I don't envy anybody who has to tease this out into the kind of levers of in, in interventions that can actually move the needle. But it feels so important to me. It feels so important that actually that work be done. Because I think what you just said, what you called it, good governance, all of that, maybe it's not so compelling. <laughs> maybe it's hard to get people engaged. Maybe it doesn't feel like it moves the needle. But in fact, is it actually the oxygen that's in the room? You know, is it the actual thing that's actually making all this possible? Yeah. Well, so flipping this on its head. So they say, mm -hmm. okay, some levels of populism are ways to engage young people. But the, the question that they, I don't think they asked is, are there any other ways to engage young people that don't require these potentially polarizing positions that populism often produces? Are there any yeah. ways to be able to engage young people in the democratic process so that we are building for a better future, which don't make us run this kind of walk on this razor edge uh, that populism often produces? What do you think about that? Yeah. Well, no, I think it's the exact right question. In fact, I think actually it's some of the research that's ahead for their work. Um, so I don't think they have that wrapped up in a bow. And I think even the populism effect that they described, they said it actually has a term limit. Quite literally, you'll see a bounce in some cases for one or two terms. But by the time you're at the third term, even that populist bump um, starts giving way because those underlying, those gnawing issues around, is it working or, or not? Is it functioning? They, they, they start taking, taking hold. So, so I don't think the, I don't, I don't think there's a ready-made answer, frankly, um, at least in the research that, that we saw and we talked about. And I think you're right. That is the question is how do we mobilize a kind of sustainable sustaining governance and engagement that is rooted in it, it you know it's funny it almost feels like the, the um an analogy to people saying i want to develop a social media platform that doesn't feast on our worst divisions you know that doesn't that doesn't uh, <laughs> right that doesn't cause us that isn't isn't premised on you know sure. outrage and, and clickability and how do i how do i grab eyeballs it feels like a, a similar question how do we actually create a concept of of engagement and civic engagement that's durable that's rooted that can withstand these kinds of pressures um and and unfortunately and this is this is back to our you know most recent you know populist horse horse story man isn't it attractive when it's rooted in a reality tv show concept you know man isn't it attractive doesn't it get people mobilized when you know, you know how to, you know how to package and frame it in a way that gets everybody all riled up, you know? And I, I think this is, this is the boring work. And so it's the harder work, you know, how do you make this work and work well for people? But I think it's, I think you've asked the perfect question. It's the exact right question. Well, thank you, Kirk, for another stomach churning trip. <laughs> Hard to say through the, uh, the under, <laughs> under belly, under world of our souls. From disinformation to populism. <laughs> uh, I just can't wait to see what you come up with next, Kirk. So thanks well, for that. I have to say thank you to you and to the entire Let's Hear It uh, audience because these researchers doing this important work are saying yes to talking about it with us because they value this platform. So I have to say... <laughs> <laughs> nobody's nobody's talking to this uh this this Way random working that fool. pat on your own back sir but hey it's okay. a pat on your back it's a pat it's a pat <laughs> on this whole this whole enterprise that we're developing here but it's really fun to reach out to these researchers and have them 
be so willing to talk about this work, even if it challenges us. So okay, thank you. Well, it's I funny feel challenged. Well, thanks again, <laughs> Kirk, and we will see folks next week. And that's it for this episode. Please let us know if you have any thoughts about what you heard today or people we should have on the show, and that includes yourself. We'd like to thank Maggie Brown, our intrepid production coordinator. John Ali, the tuneful and inspiring composer of our theme music. We'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Communications Network, the Lumina Foundation, and the Heinz Endowments. Thank you, thank you. And check out the Heinz Endowment, their terrific podcast, We Can Be. That's hosted by Grant Oliphant, and you can find it at heinz.org slash podcast. We would certainly like to thank today's guest, and of course, all of you, and thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> no, no. Thank you, Mr. Brown. <laughs> Till next time. Let's hear it.